Um, I want to start in a passage that's not Psalm 119. Uh, You're welcome to stay in Psalm 119, but I want to take us quickly here to John chapter uh, 5, verse 39 uh, through 47, because here... Here's the thing, um, we're, we're in the Old Testament, right? We're studying an Old Testament book. Um, it, it was written many, many centuries before Jesus came into the world. But one of the things that we are firmly convinced of, and the scriptures affirm this, is that everything we see in Old Testament and New Testament is about Jesus. That Jesus is the point of the Bible, And I think that's important for us. I I know if you've been coming here a while, you're probably like, yeah, 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 you say that all the time. And it's true, I do, because it is the reality. This is all about Jesus and what he's done for us and how God the Father sent him into the world to save us from our sins. And and now Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit into our lives to, to remind us of Christ and to bring us into his likeness. And all those things are true. Um, but the Bible is about Jesus and the passage in front of us is about Jesus as well. So before we get into that passage, I, wanna sh- I just want to do a little kind of an aside to show you where Jesus himself talks about this issue. And in John 5, verse 39 uh, through 47, he's confronting the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group of religious elites They were in a position of political power, but they were also incredibly learned people. Uh, They knew their scriptures well, but Jesus kind of goads them a little bit here in in pointing out that though they know the scriptures, they don't really know the scriptures. And he tells them why that's the case. Look at verse 39. It says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, right? He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, we would uh, agree with that, right? We, we search the scriptures, we read the scriptures because in them we find Jesus and eternal life through him. But look at what he says at the end of verse 39. He tells them, and it is they, the scriptures that these Pharisees search, that bear witness or testify about me. Yet, verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you would have life. This, this is really, this is why the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus all the time, right? Because he's just like pointing out to them the obviousness of their, uh, the, uh, of their hypocrisy. And he's pointing out to them the, the flaws in their belief system. And he says to them, you search the scriptures because you, I think he would say in parentheses, rightly believe that in the scriptures you find life. But it's the scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says. So that's the key, right? The, the life we have through the scriptures isn't in the scriptures themselves. It is in the fact that they point us to the God who saves through Jesus. The Bible is not our God. It's not our object of worship. We don't revere the Bible in the same way we revere God because the scriptures are simply a conduit by which God gets our hearts to him, gets our lives to him. And so he's calling out the Pharisees and saying, you refuse to come to me, even though those scriptures that you're searching talk about me. And because you're not coming to me, you don't actually have the life you're looking for. You're searching for eternal life, but I'm the one that can give you life. 
He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. So now he calls them out and just flat out says, you don't have the love of God within you. You're not part of the Lord's family. And he says, I've come into my father's name, come in my father's name and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He says, you guys are way more concerned about what you think of each other than you are about what God thinks of you. You can see why they aren't super happy with Jesus, right? He's calling them out. Verse 45, I love this. This, is actually, this actually kind of makes me laugh a little bit. He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. So he's like, don't, don't think that I'm going to be bringing an accusation to God about you. But there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Right? So, so these people are pouring over the Old Testament scriptures, which kind of big category would be Moses, right? And the first five books of the New Old Testament were written by Moses. Moses was the guy that these people were really clinging to. And he's going, you know what? I'm not accusing you, but Moses is accusing you. Because if you believed Moses, verse 46, you would have believed me because he wrote of me. Moses wrote of me. Did you catch that? Which means that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are about Jesus. And by the way, so are the rest of it, right? But he says, Moses wrote of me, but you do not believe his writing, so how will you believe my words? Okay, so I just want to set this in front of us. This is not really, this has nothing to do with what we're really talking about today, but I want to put this in front of us because if we don't get this, we're going we're gonna to interpret the Old Testament in some really funky ways. If, if we don't read the Old Testament the way Jesus wants us to read it, which is, this is all about me, then we're going to read it as it's all about us. And it's just about me and what I do and how I can follow these rules. And it misses the whole point. Like, following the rules of the Old Testament is not the point. The point is that these things, these rules and these commands and all these laws are meant to show us a couple things. They're meant to show us God's glory and holiness, right? So they put in front of us the fact that God is perfect and we're not. They show us in light of that that we're sinners and need a savior because we can't obey everything that's in the scriptures. And so we need someone who could. And that's where Jesus steps in, right? Jesus is what this is all about. It's getting us to him. And so I think it's important. It's, a, it's an important thing for us to know these things are uh, what's in the scriptures, what Jesus himself affirms about the Old Testament so that as we approach the Old Testament, we can go, okay, I, don't, I may not know exactly how, I may not fully understand the way, but, but this is about Jesus somehow. It gets us to him somehow, somewhere. So that's where we're going to be. Um, and if, going back to Psalm 119 now, I, I think we can look at this through the lens of Christ and um, what, what King David is writing here and affirming here I think it's just super helpful as we look at it through the lens of the gospel. And so let's start in verse 113. Um, we're going to read through 117. And I think these verses set us up 
for the main point of this stanza in this psalm. This psalm is very long, right? We're on, a, on verse 113. This psalm is longer than most of the letters of the New Testament and many of the Old Testament prophets. Like, it's a long psalm just on its own. So there, it covers a lot of subjects. But this is an interesting one. So look at let's look at it together. Verse 113, it says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. So again, we're, he, he said this already. We, we saw this last week as well. In verse 97, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Here again, he's affirming his love for the law, meaning his love for what God has shown him about, about God's character and nature and all the things. Right? He loves that God has revealed to him who God is through, through the law, through Moses. And, but, but as we get there, he doesn't just extol or proclaim great things about the law itself. He actually pivots here to the person of God, that the law gets him to God. The word gets him to God. That's what Jesus' point is in John 5, right? That the scriptures are about me. They testify of me because the scriptures are that conduit to get us to our Savior. And we're seeing that here in how David writes about the Lord. He says in verse 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word, right? So there's this, I hope in your word, why? Because you, God, you are my, my shield and my hiding place. The word gets us to the person of Jesus. And so that's what we're seeing, right? He says, depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. This is a prayer, right? He's speaking to to the Lord and he's saying, God, you are my hiding place and my shield. Your word tells me that. I put my hope in what you say about these things. I, he asks in verse 116, uphold me according to your promise or according to your word that I may live. And then in verse 117, he says, hold me up that I may be safe. Here, here's the theme I think we're seeing in this section of Psalm 119. We are seeing that in God, through the person of Jesus Christ in the gospel, we find our safety, our security, our help. I, I think that's the overarching theme here is David is extolling God's character as the one who will keep him safe, who will keep him secure, who will be for him a hiding place and a shield, right? A hiding place and a shield are defensive things. You, you go into hiding to keep yourself alive. You use a shield to protect yourself from something that's going to hit you, harm you. Right? In, in battle, these are the things that David is saying, but he's saying that it's not anything other than you and you alone, Lord, 
that is my hiding place, my shield. You are the one who upholds me. You're the one that keeps me safe. You're the one that brings me to life. That's important, right? Because as Jesus tells the Pharisees in John 5, it is not about their righteousness that makes them safe in Jesus. It is about Christ's righteousness and work for them that can make them safe and give them life. And this is here. It's in the, it's in the Old Testament scriptures. It's in front of our faces as we read it, right? And so where we, where we get to go from here is the rest of the psalm really begins to just unpack why we're safe in, in God's hands, why we're safe through the gospel of Jesus Christ, why we have the security and the, and the eternal hope that we have. He, he just gives us several reasons throughout this that, that we can look at and explore today. So let's start in verse 118. He's going to, or continue in verse 118. He's going to give us uh, the first reason why it is true that God is his hiding place, his shield, the upholder of his life, and his place of safety. It says it in verse 118, you spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation, for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. All right, so in this section, he's talking a little bit uh, in ways that might make us kind of uncomfortable. He's, he's talking about his enemies. And he's expressing that God is going to do something with his enemies um, that, again, in our kind of modern sensibilities might make us a little squirmy, right? Like, we don't necessarily like this. Uh, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But this is just one of those things. It's like, okay, do, do we want to, like, celebrate that God destroys people or, you know, those kind of things? Um, look, ultimately, David is living as a king over God's nation, and he's got real physical enemies that, that exist to destroy his, his kingship and his life. Uh, even his own son Absalom w- was plotting and conspiring against him. David was attacked from all sides, often had to hide for his life, first from King Saul, uh, who got wind of the fact that David was going to take his place because he had disqualified himself. And then later on, in just this tumultuous uh, transition of power. And so David is writing from that standpoint of going, I have these real human enemies that are going to try to kill me and I need to trust in the Lord for his protection and his safety. But there is something deeper here for us, right? Because that this isn't our context. But there is a truth here that is universally right and it needs to be brought out. That, that because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are safe, not merely from human enemies. I don't think that's the focus at all. But ultimately, we are safe because Christ has given ultimate victory in salvation. We do have enemies. We have enemies like sin and Satan. We have 
enemies that'll separate us from God, like our own deceitfulness and wickedness. We have these real problems that will not just take our earthly life, but could destroy us eternally. And yet what we know is that God has given to us a place of safety and security, not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's ultimate victory in salvation. Jesus came into the world to to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that is to bring about uh, the end of evil, the end of wickedness, the end of all the things that we, that we so long to see vanquished. Right? He, he's going to right all the wrongs. And he actually has already begun that work through the cross. We see that the, this is a, one of those situations where we are living in an already, it's true already, but it's not yet fully realized situation. Right? The, the cross of Christ has dealt a death blow to our enemies of sin and Satan. It's, it's done. It's finished in that regard. And yet the, the implications of that are still unfolding and will be finally seen and realized in the last day when Christ returns. But we see that the victory is already won. It's not a future thing for us. It is a current thing. If you look at verse uh, Colossians chapter 2. I don't think I have these verses up on the screen, but Colossians chapter 2, Paul expresses this and, and he explains how this works through the cross. Look at what it says, if I can find it there. Here we go. Um, it says, and you, verse 13, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made you alive together with him. How? Having forgiven us of all of our trespasses, all of our sins, all of our failures. He did this, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, these legal demands, these trespasses, he set aside nailing it to the cross. But look at verse 15. It says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. So we're seeing here this reality of how Christ gets us out of our sinfulness by dying on the cross for those sins, taking the debt we owed to him and paying that debt in his own life and death. And, and then in that act, Paul says, he, he kind of summarizes what's happened in all of this by saying, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's disarmed Satan and our sinfulness and all the things that keep us away from the Lord Jesus. He's disarmed these rulers and authorities and he's put them to open shame by triumphing over them through the cross. That's an amazing thing. We're seeing that the things that David is writing about centuries and centuries before Jesus died on the cross is, are shadowing the reality that would come through Christ in, in creating a place of security and safety for us and being a hiding place and a shield. He did that through the cross. 
The cross shields us from the judgment of God. The cross shields us and is our hiding place from the righteous judgment we deserve for sin. Jesus and the cross takes upon himself all of our brokenness so that we're, we're no longer held accountable to those things because Jesus took that for us. That puts us in a position of, of total safety. We do not have to fear the judgment of God. We don't have to approach his throne with anything but confidence. That's what we're told to do. Approach the throne of grace with confidence. That can only be accomplished because Jesus did the work for us. We see that this salvation is mentioned specifically in, uh, in this passage. We see it in verse 123. After after David, King David writes about his enemies, he says, my eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. You know where the fulfillment of God's righteous promise comes in? Jesus. He's the fulfillment. And David's saying, my eyes are longing for that day. David didn't get to live to see that day on earth, but he, he knows it now. And we will know it fully too one day. We only see in part as well. But, but we get a little bit of a shinier mirror than, uh, than David got, and so we can be grateful for that. And that, yeah, we're all still longing for the day that we, we finally can walk into this true salvation that's been already accomplished by the cross. All right, well, let's keep reading. Look at the next verse. He says, Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. So here we've said we're safe in Jesus because he has accomplished ultimate salvation for us through the cross And that has given us victory over our sin, victory over our enemies. But why would Jesus do this for us? That's where David starts to go. In the very next verse, after saying he longs for his, to see God's salvation and the fulfillment of his promises, the very next thing he writes is, deal with me according to what? Steadfast love. The reason that we are safe in Jesus is because he truly does love us. And that word steadfast is important there. Because God doesn't love us through Jesus with this like daisy, he loves me, he loves me not kind of thing, right? He doesn't treat us that way. What he does is he loves us with a steadfast love and steadfast means it doesn't shift, it doesn't change, it doesn't move, it doesn't alter. There's nothing that can shake it or change it in any way. It's steadfast. And this, through, through Christ, is how God loves us. In a steadfast way. In a non-changing, unchangeable way, we see the love of God come through for us. We're safe in him because of that. And then it says this, verse 126, 
I, this is an interesting verse. It says, it is time for the Lord to act. Why? Because your law has been broken. Now, this is interesting because I think in, in David's mind here, in the context of what he's saying, he's going, look, look at all these enemies in my life. Look at how they've mistreated me. God, it's time for you to get your act down here and crush these lawbreakers. But here's the problem. Uh, we're all the lawbreakers. So do we really want to say, God, it's time to act because your law has been broken? Well, yes and no, right? We don't want him to act out his judgment on us because that's, that's our de- doom and destruction. Though we have, we've earned it, we've deserved it, it's not what we want. What we want is the Lord to act in a specific way so that Jesus Christ gets to be the one that takes the judgment for us. And that's where the beauty of the gospel begins to come in, right? Jesus is the one who is acted against on your behalf. The Lord did act. The Lord did do something about his broken law. God didn't just turn a blind eye to the fact that the world is sinful and broken. He did something about it by sending his own son into the world to be for us that sacrificial death, to take the action of God off of his people and onto him. This happens because God loves us, right? The, the Bible says this, Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love for us in the act of Christ dying in the place of sinners. So we're going to turn to the New Testament here in just a minute, but I want to talk, talk about this because I think, um, I think that so many of us, I have struggled with this, you've probably struggled with this, we struggle with really believing what we've just seen here. We've seen that we are safe in Jesus because he died in our place. He took the wrath of God we deserve. He did that out of his steadfast love for us. We agree with those things theologically. We believe them to a point. But I think we really struggle to actually think those things are true of us. Because we're confronted all the time with our own sinfulness, right? We're confronted all the time by the fact that we're not perfect people, that we've failed the Lord time and time again. We've, we've, we're confronted with these things and we need the consolation of the word of God here. We need to be reminded of the very character of Christ for you in your life right now. And I think there's two passages I, I want to take us to, to that highlights this. Um, the first is John chapter 8. It's probably a familiar story to some of you here, and if not, you'll get to hear it. It's an amazing story. It starts at the very end of verse, um, 
of chapter 7 and the way that the verses broke down is kind of funky here, but um, he, here's what it says. We'll start in verse 1 of 8. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Funny how the guy's not there, right? It takes two to tango, but here we are, right? The woman's there and she's now being threatened with her life, right? The law says we should stone such women. What do you say? Now it says in verse six that they said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. So their, their assumption is that Jesus is going to say, no, we shouldn't kill this woman, right? Which is a good assumption. Um, they, they knew at least enough of Jesus' character to go, we can get him with this. We can trick him into saying the wrong thing and then we can have something to charge against him. And it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And I don't know how much ink has been spilled over the centuries on what that might have been. <laughs> it, doesn't sell, it doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote. Who knows what Jesus wrote? Uh, it's kind of an interesting detail that they didn't give us the, the uh, information about. But he wrote something on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, okay, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he once more bent down and wrote on the ground. So what is Jesus' response to the, to the angry crowd of Pharisees? His response is, okay, you can, you can kill this woman if you've never sinned. How's about that? And of course, that was the perfect answer because they all know that they're just as guilty as this woman at, at the end of the day. They may not have acted out sin in the same way that she did, but they were all sinners. And so when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now here's the, here's the crucial thing. Verse 10, Jesus stood and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Jesus was the only person in that, in that place that could have condemned this woman because he's the only one without sin. He was the only one who had the right to condemn this woman, and yet he doesn't. Why? Is it just because he turns a blind eye to sin, that it doesn't matter, that he's just going to ignore it and, and just go, ah, what's the big deal? No. That's not why. It's because Jesus would take the condemnation that this woman deserved upon himself. And he takes the condemnation that you and I deserve 
upon himself. He gives to us in that the righteousness of God and takes upon himself the sinfulness of us. In the cross, in the gospel, we are truly and completely safe from being condemned by God. Not because God ignores sin or doesn't want to deal with sin, but in fact because he did deal with sin through the death of Christ. And that death took your condemnation. So I know it's hard for us to believe that, but we've got to continually preach the gospel to our hearts in moments when we want to condemn ourselves. In those moments when we want to believe that it's all lost, it's all hopeless because I've messed up again, we have to pivot away from that and go, no, it's not over, it's not done. I'm safe in Jesus because he actually took my condemnation. And so this little story in John 8 is highlighting the heart and character of God in this and would ultimately be fulfilled as he's crucified for, these, for this woman and for us. I think the other thing that we fear, not just condemnation, but we fear rejection. Right? We, we fear being rejected by God and by others. It's ingrained in us. It's, it's, a, it's a human condition. We don't want to be rejected by anyone. And I want to just speak to that for just a couple minutes because I think we need the consolation of God's word that you are not condemned because Jesus takes your condemnation. But you're also safe from being rejected and thrown away. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Um, he's writing this letter. It was probably, most scholar think, scholars think that this was the last letter Paul wrote before his death. And he was an old man, a fairly old man. He was in a prison. He's waiting his trial in Rome. He was starting to have his trials, actually, as we'll see. Uh, and he's writing to Timothy, and here's what he says. He says some really interesting things. He says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me in ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak that I left at, with Carpus at Troas. Also bring the books and above all the parchments. So th these, we read these and go, oh, this has nothing to do with us, right? But, but we'll, we'll get there, okay? Now, verse 14, it says, Alexander the coppersmith did me a great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Now here's the key. In verse 16, it says, at my first defense, his first standing in trial, right? For, for being a Christian, he was under trial for this. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. That, that's gotta be a heartbreaking situation for the Apostle Paul, right? 
he's rotting away in a prison cell. And he goes through this long list of all these people that, he, that he's sent other places. Now, those are good send-offs, right? Those are not bad things. There's a couple bad send-offs too. This coppersmith guy, Alexander, uh, was apparently leaving for bad reasons. And there were a couple other guys there. But most people are just taken off to do ministry somewhere else. And so Paul's all alone. He's got Luke. I don't know why Luke didn't come to the trial, but nobody came to the trial. He's there. He's defending himself before the Romans and no one is by him. No one is with him. He's been deserted. But then he says this, may it not be charged against them. Verse 17, because the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is an interesting thing, right? Paul's at the end of his life. He's led countless people to Jesus, directly and indirectly. Indirectly, we're all in Jesus because the apostle Paul preached the gospel, right? And, and so here he is at the end of his life. He's in prison and he is just abandoned. He's alone and nobody seems to care He's been rejected by all of his friends virtually. Now, maybe not actively, right? Because some of them left for good reasons. But, but there is a, a deep sense of loss here in Paul. You can hear it in, in his writing. You can, you can sense it. Like he is busted up about this. And, and he is not, like he's not happy that he's all alone in this world. And he's asking Timothy to show up, to be his friend again, to come and help him out, right? Because he's, he's alone or he feels alone. But at the end of this, he affirms something vital. That the Lord is with him. That the Lord stood by him. The Lord Jesus stood by him, strengthened him, enabled him to preach the gospel to the, to the Romans that he was uh, being accused uh, by. And he was ultimately rescued in that moment from, from harm. And then he says, I will be delivered safely into Christ's kingdom. You know, we all fear rejection. We just do. But in Christ, we don't have to fear it. You may lose all your friends. And I'm not saying that because I hope it happens. I really hope it doesn't, right? But you might. You might be rejected by every friend you have. You might be rejected by your family. Maybe you have been. But you will never be rejected by Jesus. And the reason we will never be rejected by Jesus is because he was rejected by men so that we would not be rejected by him. We have a great and loving God that, that cares for us, that takes our condemnation, that is our place of safety, that will deliver us to our eternal home. This is the confidence we have. So all the things that the world has, we shouldn't count on them. 
but we can count on Jesus to be our place of safety, to be our security, to be our, our savior. And he did that through the cross and in the resurrection and all the things that, that followed from there, we see the glory of God at work in this. So be encouraged, my friends, be encouraged. Jesus is for you. He's not against you. He's with you. He will never leave you. I need that and you need that. We need those reminders because the whole life we live tells us otherwise. We need to know we're safe in Jesus. Let me pray for you. Uh, God, we thank you that you have loved us. You've shown your grace to us in Christ. And I pray that, that everyone in this room who you know perfectly and you know exactly what kind of road they've walked and what they're walking now and you know what they're dealing with and you know all of our insecurities and all of our fears and all of our doubts and yet you come near to us in those things and I just pray that your word would be this balm that heals us and reminds us of our security and safety in Jesus and that it's not about us it's not about what we do or what we continue to do that keeps us in you but it's your steadfast love. Would you pour that out on our lives today? And we pray that you would do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.